And uh, I've loved this series. I've enjoyed studying some of these parables. Uh, you may be wondering, say, Brother Phil, why haven't you preached some of the more famous ones like the parable of the sower? Well, I just preached on that about a year ago on a Wednesday night. And uh, not that any part of the Word of God you can't preach or go over again, but it's not feeling led that way. And we're going to come to Luke 15 here in just a moment and look at a couple of parables here together. We're going to put them together. And um, again, thank you for being here. And like I said, I'm excited about, I'm just, I'm, I woke up this morning just really excited to be back and looking forward to the opportunity to be here today and what God has in store for us. But in Luke chapter 15, I'd like to read the first 10 verses, if you'd read along with me. Luke 15, beginning in verse number 1. It says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, set rejoicing. Verse 6 says, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep, which was lost. For I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons, which need no repentance. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God, or one sinner that cometh to repentance. Father, I pray you bless the reading of your word today and the teaching as well. Lord, we just thank you so much for being a God that not only hears our prayer, but a God that can answer our prayers. And Lord, I pray as we meet together for the next few moments that you be with us. Lord, give me exactly what you have for me to say. Lord, I have notes, but I want to be sensitive to your leading. But Lord, I pray you would forgive me of my sins and my failures, the things that are between me and you today. And Lord, I confess them now and ask for you, Lord, to be able to speak through your word. Lord, for everyone that's here today, I pray you bless them for, for coming, whether they're just here visiting or, Lord, whether they call this their church home. Lord, I pray you would just give them exactly what you have for them today. May we pull ourselves up to the table of your word. Feed us from your bread. Lord, if there's one person here today that does not know you as their Lord and Savior, Lord, they don't have a relationship with Christ, may today be the day that you convict them of their sin and show them your unbelievable love and they put their faith and trust in Christ. Thank you for all you do for us. Be with those working with the children. Bless them. Speak to the hearts of those children. May we make much of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Luke chapter 15 is, in my opinion, one of the greatest chapters probably in all the New Testament. In Luke 15, you get three different parables. And just a reminder, a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. It's kind of like an illustration. You know, Jesus is trying to explain things to the disciples and the Pharisees and everybody else. And a lot of times, trying to get them to understand some principles and some things of God, he uses what we call parables, these stories of, of Christ. He uses a lot of them, or tons of them, that he uses, and we've been looking at several, I know. But this particular chapter contains three parables, and they're all about the lost and what's found. Uh, if you have an insert there, you can kind of go along and see what we're going to do, and, and kind of as we go forward, the first two parables, the first one, it's actually about a shepherd that there was a sheep that he lo that is lost, not that he lost, but a sheep that was lost, and he goes out and rescues it. The second parable, as we read, is about a lost coin and a woman that searched frantically to find it. The third story, the third parable, we're not going to cover today, is probably the more famous of the parables. It's the parable of the lost son. I like to call it the parable of the running Savior. That's the prodigal son, if you remember correctly. When you get to Luke chapter 15, if you notice, we stopped at verse 10. But if you read verses 11 through 32, that's the parable of the prodigal son. And in reading, you say, well, Brother Phil, why don't you focus on the lost son? Because that story is really not about a lost son. That's really about a running Savior that says when the father turned and saw that his son was coming back, it says that he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and embraced him and said, my son that was lost is now found. My son that was dead is now alive again. And that's probably the more famous of all the parables there, particularly in this chapter. But that's not what we're going to look at. 
But there is a central theme here in this chapter. is about things that are lost and now that are found. And I want us to look at that today. And I want you to look back in verse number 1. I know verses 1 and 2 aren't really part of the parables of this particular two we're going to look at. But I think they set a pretty good tone. In Luke 15, verse number 1, look what it says. It says, Then drew near to him, him being Jesus, all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. By the way, I've underlined in my Bible, for to hear him. It says that Jesus was there, and by the way, the setting is there are publicans. Those are people that are outcasts that people hated. They're also sinners, which means just people that were the outcasts of society and that nobody would love to be around them and desire to be near them. But it also says in verse number 2 later that there were those Pharisees, those religious about being religious, if you would, people, and they're all sitting around. But even though you see two groups of people, you got publicans and sinners, and you got Pharisees and scribes. Can I tell you, they both were there for far different reasons. The ones in verse number 1, the publicans and sinners, what did it say they wanted to do? They wanted to hear Christ. Can I tell you, there's a good reason right there to be near Jesus. That's a good reason tomorrow morning when you get up. You ought to pick up this book right here and read it for yourself because you want to hear from God. You say, Brother Phil, I'm here today. I hear from God. Well, I tell you what, when I wake up tomorrow morning, I got new problems, new pressures, and new situations, and sometimes old ones that ain't found their way to go away yet. And I need God to speak to me again. I want to hear from God. Hopefully you're here today because you want to hear from God. Now, I know you might be here for various reasons, but can I tell you, there was no better reason for sitting around Jesus than what these publicans and sinners saying, you know what, I'm here because I want to hear him. I want to hear him. We always joke that a lot of times in church, if we're not careful... The reason we come is so we can get in some elbow practice. You know what I mean? Oh, you hear what he said there? Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I hope you're paying attention to that right there. Doing all that kind of stuff. And some of you are like, I'm not going to move or scratch my nose now. No, it's okay. But you know what? This one group of people, and by the way, may we be the same way, regardless of where we're at spiritually, that we want to hear. That's why you, tomorrow when you live your life and go about your day-to-day routine, it's good to pray and talk to God. That's why it's good to read that Bible. That's why it's good to be in church as faithful as you can. And by the way, God can speak in so many ways other than just the Bible and other than just reading and other than just going to church. But have the mindset that you're coming and whatever you're doing in your life that day, you want to hear. That's a pretty good reason. And I have in my notes in my Bible is this. I'm here today. You say, Brother Phil, you're not here to hear anything. You're here to preach it. But can I say, if I'm not here to hear from God today, then there's no sense in me preaching anything. And when I look at this, I ask myself, is this the reason why I'm here today? Why are you here? Well, if I'm not here, you're going to call me. Probably. I might text you. What's the reason you're here today? Are you here to hear from God? Because if you're not here to hear from God, you might have some good social interactions. You might have some good laughs. You might have a good chance to just kind of distract yourself from what's going on in life. But can I tell you something? It won't last. It won't change you. You'll go out just as you came in. But do you desire to hear from him? But also it goes on to say in verse number 2, the other group of people says, And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. So you see the one group that wants to hear. But it says here these Pharisees, these scribes, and you know what's funny? Their critique, if you would, their complaint is, Look at Jesus. Look at him. He receives them. He accepts these people. Not only does he receive them and accept them, he eats with them. He fellowships with them. What is wrong with him? By the way, may we both, and all of us that claim to know Christ, have the same criticism said of us. That you know what? There's nobody that we're better than. There's nobody that we cannot receive and accept. You know what? There's no way you're ever going to reach anyone in your life until you're willing to receive them and accept them. You'll never, ever change anybody's life As long as you're here and you make them feel that they're there. You know what? When Jesus died on the cross and saved me, he's not here. He's more than I can ever reach. But he came down to man and blood and died. Why? So he could receive us. He became sin for us. And when I look at this passage, I have underlined in verse number two, receiveth and eateth with. When I look at that, you know what that's basically saying? It's saying that he's accepting them and he's fellowshipping with them to have influence with them. 
I have in my notes here, we will never reach people until we're willing to receive them and accept them. You say, Brother Phil, I want to reach people, but they disappoint me where they are in life. You know what I heard uh, Dr. Sells, Rachel's grandpa, say this. Reach people where they're at, not where you think they ought to be. Because if you're never going to reach out to people because they're not where you think they ought to be spiritually, mentally, whatever it is in their life. If you don't reach people where they're at, you'll never reach them. Now, I don't mean drop your standards of holiness and living. That's a total different animal. You are to be holy as I am holy, saith the Lord. But if we don't reach people where they're at, and we have this mentality, well, they should be here, then guess what? You'll never have any influence on anyone in your life. You'll never have it. But Jesus says, what did he say? He goes, he receiveth them. You know what it means? Accept them. You say, Brother Phil, you're telling us we need to tolerate sin? No. But Jesus accepted me the way I am. But he loved me enough to not let me stay where I'm at. Jesus loves me as a, as, a, as a saint, if you would, as a believer, if you would. But can I tell you, I sin every day. I fail every day. But he still loves me and accepts me. But he loves me enough to say, I'm willing to accept you. But I desire to make you different. I desire to make you more. If we don't, by the way, it says eateth with them. If we're not willing to fellowship with sinners and people, then we'll never ever have any influence on them. Let me ask you a question. Who do you value the opinion more of? The influence more of? Someone that you just have an acquaintance with or somebody that's willing to fellowship with you? Someone that's willing to sit down at a table with you? Somebody that's willing to sit down and not just be heard but willing to listen, even though they may have the answers, they may not have the answers. By the way, they might be able to give you all the answers, but through God's work and grace, they say, you know what, I'm just going to sit and listen to you. But who do you fellowship with? And here's what my fear is in my life and the life of a lot of people that call themselves Christians. We never fellowship outside of our own families. And we wonder why we don't reach people for Christ. See, because you, when you receive them and you accept them, they feel accepted. But when you fellowship with them, you build that relationship with them, you've got all the opportunity in the world to have influence on them, to have all the opportunity. This life that we live is all about relationships. It's about relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's about relationships with other people that are lost, that need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. It's about building relationships with people that are saved, that strengthen you in their faith when you're weak. But it's also about that brother and sister in Christ that's struggling right now, and you already have that relationship, that God may use you to help them on their way of life. How are your relationships? How are those people that you fellowship with, that you eat with, that you do those things? If we're not careful, this just becomes a place where we meet, we say hi, we shake hands. But we never, ever fellowship with people. You know, let me just put it like this. Let me paint the picture a little clearer. If you went out today to the restaurant and you were sitting there eating, it wouldn't be at Chick-fil-A. We understand that, you know. I got that. Everybody gets really disappointed on Sunday. Anybody else want Chick-fil-A more on Sunday than any other day of the week? Okay, yeah. Everyone's like, amen, guys. The amen I'll get today is that. Okay, good. But if you happen to go into the restaurant and you look over and you see me and my wife and we're sitting there with somebody, let's just say they've been going through the gutter of life. Maybe they're drunk. Maybe they're a prostitute. Maybe there's somebody in their life that you look at and you're like, he's got no business being with him. Does he not know if somebody sees him with those people? If somebody sees Phil and Rachel with those people right there, don't, doesn't he know what people are going to say? You know what Jesus said? I don't care what you think about that. That's what Jesus said. Because why was he building a relationship with them? To make them feel good about their sin? No. He was building a relationship with them so she could show Christ with them. Remember the lady that was caught in adultery and they drug her out there? You remember, and, all, and Jesus started writing stuff in the sand, and I always want to know what he wrote in the sand. I got an opinion, but it's just philology. But anyways, so they dropped all the stones, and they all left. And Jesus didn't look up and say, I don't condemn you. He says, I don't condemn you, but he does say this, go and sin no more. A lot of us want to say go and sin no more, but we don't want to love and fellowship, protect. If we're not careful, we're not even that way. We're one of the ones sitting there holding the rock saying, somebody say when. Somebody say when. And Jesus was willing to love people, let's just be honest, who 
who are unlovable. He is one of the love people that would give nothing back in return. Jesus didn't care what other people thought of him because of his standard of living did not diminish. He did not sin. But Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to receive them. I'm going to eat with them. And I don't care if you see me doing it or not. I don't care what your tradition is. He told the Pharisees, I don't care what your custom is. But if I'm going to reach them for what matters for eternity, I'm going to love on them, I'm going to receive them, and I'm going to fellowship with them. If you're a believer, I encourage you, if you get nothing else out of the message today, you know the Lord is your Savior, you're a believer, let me encourage you with this. Don't let the lost world disgust you. Let the lost world entice you and give you a burden for them to help them. A lot of times as Christians, what the world does and what sinful people do that don't know the Lord, it disgusts us, but we stay in that disgust and we isolate ourselves and we might as well call ourselves Pharisees. May it give us a burden for them. You ever sometimes think to yourself, well, this world's just going to keep getting worse and worse. That's what Scripture says, worse and worse. And this next generation is going to be terrible, and I can't imagine the generation after that. Well, what can change that? Christ. Who does Christ use to change that? Us. <laughs> he uses us. By the way, when you look at Jesus' disciples, you don't see very many Pharisees that were the disciples. You see a lot of publicans, a lot of sinners, a lot of down and out people that God did something great in their lives. I heard someone say, and forgive me for not knowing exactly who it was, but it says people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. They don't care how much you know until they know that you love them and that you care. I have this, and it's written for me, but I want to share it with you and understand this is for me. But I have two questions in my notes today for me to answer, but I want to share. First question is this. If Christ shared the gospel as much as I do, how many people would hear? If Christ shared the gospel in his three and a half years on earth as much as I share the gospel with people, how many people would have heard? I tell you, that number would be awful small. But I also ask myself this question. If other Christians live the gospel the way I live it, how many would see Christ lived out? If other believers lived the life of Christ the same way I lived the life of Christ, how many people out there would see Christ in me? Would see Christ in you? Once again, that's a very convicting thought. But I want us to understand today, every person in this room is in one of these two groups. You're either a verse 1 or you're a verse 2. And that doesn't matter if you're saved or lost. You fall underneath one of those two boats right there. Remember, we said the Pharisees were religious about being religious. But some things here as we jump into the parable. First thing I want to see, the first parable, number one, I want us to see the lost sheep. The lost sheep. But also, if you take notes, you want to do that, I want to look at, number one, the lost sheep, and underline this or think about this, God's individual love for you. Number one, we're going to see the lost sheep and God's individual love for you. Look again in verse number three through five. It says, and he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I think in this parable, as we can understand, God is the shepherd, and that lost sheep is us. We're that lost sheep. In Isaiah 53, verse number 6, it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one. To his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him, him being Christ, the iniquity of us all. You know, we don't like being called sheep, do we? <laughs> sheep are pretty unique animals. I had some things here about sheep. Jesus calls us sheep, so don't get mad at me. Jesus calls us sheep, okay? Number one about sheep is they're dumb. You say, Phil, I live that way. Okay. They're defenseless and they're directionless. They're dumb, they're defenseless and directionless. You won't see if you go to the circus... Now, I want you to see this trained sheep jump through this hoop. Can't train a sheep. Can't train a sheep. You know what you can do? You can lead a sheep. You can watch it. You protect it. You guide it. You look after it. You don't train them that way. Almost all of the animals have claws, sharp teeth, quills, or a hard shell, or even the speed to escape predators. But not a sheep. <laughs> not a lamb. They're pretty much defenseless. That's the way they are. They need someone else to look after them. By the way, and this, you apply this spiritually and also geographically. Sheep get lost easily. 
I want to ask you how many of you are good with directions. How many of you, if you do directions, you actually want the name of the street? That's what you want. How many of you could care less about the name of the street? You just need to know it's the second light after McDonald's. You want a landmark, okay? That's me, man. That's me. I'm not wanting to read those little letters. Give me, okay, we get to McDonald's, the second light after that, boom. Turn right, third store. Oh, there you go. That's the way I am. That's the way I am. But you know what? Sheep get lost easily, too. And by the way, when sheep get lost, you know what's interesting about sheep? You know why there's sheep dogs? When a sheep gets lost, they can't find their way back on their own. They need something to come about them and help direct them back in. And can I just be honest with you? I'm a sheep. I live my life as a believer like a sheep. If I do my own thing, (laughs) it's not going to be good. I find myself without direction in life, without focus in life. I find myself eventually unprotected in life. I find myself just lost, searching, and trying to find any kind of guidance in my life. And the Bible says, like sheep, we all have the tendency to stray away from God. A couple of Sunday nights ago, we took as our message the hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. And I tell you, I thought this was pretty, easy, pretty uh, uh, applicable here. One of the verses in Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing says this, Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to what? Leave the God I love. That's a believer saying, I'm still prone to leave. I love you, but I'm still prone to leave. I'm still prone to go do on my own. And I see here, look in this passage, Jesus used the word lost. I don't know if you saw that. In the end of verse number four, which is lost. Now, in this particular representation, this word lost here is is emphasizing a spiritual condition of those that have not received God's gift of love and grace of salvation. So when it's talking about the situation of a lost sheep, it's not talking about a believer. What it's talking about, someone that does not have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They have not received his individual gift of salvation, of love. And by the way, aren't you thankful that salvation is personal? You ever someone say, have you ever accepted the Lord as your personal Savior? Can I encourage you with something today? Your mama, your daddy, your grandma, your grandpa may have knew the Lord as their Savior, but until you have a personal, individual relationship with Jesus, you are a lost, lost sheep. Well, Brother Phil, I have, my family's been part of a church for so many years. I have, my, my mama was this, or my daddy was this, and all these great things. It doesn't matter. Salvation and God's love is individual. Yes, Jesus died for the world. He died for Phil Rogers. He died for and put your name there. It's an individual love. And if you're here today, do you have that individual love? Have you received that gift of salvation? It's an individual gift. Just to give you an idea, whenever it comes time for Christmas presents or different things, it's an interesting thing in my house if I have what we call a group gift. Because one person gets to open it. One person likes to make claims on it, but it's for everybody. You're kind of, it's for everybody, but normally one person dominates and takes it over. Salvation doesn't work like that. Salvation is individual. He doesn't want just to be your God. He wants to be your personal God. He wants to be your personal Savior. He wants to be your personal guide. He wants to be your personal influence. He wants to be your personal guidance and comfort in your life. He is an individual God that loves you individually in your life. And it says here that this sheep was lost. You're like, oh, that's not that big a deal, right? It's just a lost sheep. He's got 99 of them. Losing one of them is not big a deal, right? No, lost is pretty bad when you think about it in a spiritual condition. Can I tell you, it would be a terrible thing in your life to lose your health. I know some of you are experiencing things in your life where you can't do exactly what you once could do. But you know, it would be a terrible thing in life to lose your health. It would be a terrible thing in life to lose your stamina. It would be a terrible thing in life to lose your possessions. It would be a terrible thing in life to lose your wealth or whatever money you have. But can I tell you today, there's not a more terrible situation in all of life than you can face than to lose your soul, to be lost spiritually. Why does Jesus say it's harder for a rich man to enter? And to go, it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Because he, he doesn't realize he's lost. He's trusting in what he has. And can I tell you today, if you don't know the Lord is your Savior, your condition is about as terrible as it can get. It doesn't matter how much this other stuff works out for you in the world. 
But if you don't know the Lord, there's not a worse situation that you could ever face in your life but that to be lost. Mark chapter 8, verse 36 says, For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So Brother Phil, this ain't very encouraging. If, I lose, if I'm here and I don't know the Lord and I, my soul is lost, I don't know the Lord, what's great about that? I got good news for you. Good news is, is verse number 4. It says, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he shall find it? Can I tell you what the good news is about you here today in your lost condition? Is that Christ is searching for you. He's searching for you. He's looking for you. He's out for you. What does it say over in Luke chapter 19, verse number 10? It says, For the Son of Man cometh, but what? To seek... And to save that which is lost. We always love the part of being saved. That's right. But it doesn't say the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. He says he's come to seek. That's a process. And if you're here today and you're lost spiritually, you're a lost sheep, it don't matter how much of God you know about, but you don't have an individual relationship with Christ. Can I tell you some great news for you? There's a Jesus that's searching for you, and he's longing for you, and he loves you more than you've ever known what love is before. And he gave his son to die on the cross for you. Why? Because he's seeking you to save you. And he wants you to be saved. He wants you to have that relationship with him. And that is the good news. But I also love in, in the passage here, if you read it, it says, What happens when he finds that sheep? Verse number 5. And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. Now, over in the book of Matthew, there's a verse in chapter number 11 that I believe is a great parallel to verse number 5 of Luke 15. Luke 15, 5 says, And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders. That's not an idea of being angry. That's not an idea of being upset. I don't know if you've ever done this before. I've experienced this in my life where I haven't always been where I was supposed to be, especially as a little person. And some member of my family, particularly my mama, would come and what, snatch me up and drag me back. You know, your feet hit the ground every 20 yards, you know, kind of thing like that. They're dragging you back. And it gets pretty aggravating sometimes, don't it? When they don't obey, they just and grab and snatch you up and do it like that. Luke 15.5 is not snatching up out of anger. Luke 15.5 is that I found you. I'm going to put you on my shoulders. I'm going to take the weight. I'm going to take the load. And I'm going to carry you to where you cannot go on your own. Don't miss this. I cannot come to God for salvation on my own. I cannot save myself. I cannot enter into that rest that God has for my soul on my own. But if I will allow him to find me and accept his gift of salvation, he will come, he will take me and put me on his shoulders. Just like it says in Matthew 11, verse number 28, Come unto me, all ye that are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's what Luke 15, 5 pictures. Luke 15, 5 is what Matthew eleven twenty eight is saying. He's like, I found the sheep. If you just come, I know you're laboring. I know you're tired. I know you don't have peace. But if you come, I'll take you upon my shoulders. I'll take the weight. And I'll carry you back. By the way, it does say, how do you carry him back? Verse, end of verse 5. Rejoicing. Not scolding. Like I said, I've been snatched up before. And the whole ride back couldn't have been shorter. Because <laughs> all I did was get scorned the whole time I was there. Always remember this, and I know I say this a lot. God never guilts you for your sin, but he does convict you of your sin. Guilt is the desire to make you feel bad about what you've done and to punish. Convict is a love to say, I want to correct you so you can be who I want you to be and you never do this again. Prime example. I'd love to sit here and tell you every time that I've disciplined my children, I've done it in a loving, convicting way instead of in a guilting, embarrassing, humiliating way. By the way, if you ask my kids, ask them which one they probably remember more. Not the right way. But can I tell you now, one time God's ever made me feel worthless for how I've left him. He's always come, and yeah, it's had to be some harsh times sometimes. Because past sin does mean present suffering. We need to understand that. But he takes me back to where he wants me to be. 
and he wants to give me that rest. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 is a great one about that, talking about we're justified through the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have what? Peace with God. If you don't know the Lord as your Savior today, I want to encourage you about something. You're a lost sheep, but there's a God that loves you individually. Yeah, there's a God that doesn't like what you've done in your life, but can I tell you, don't focus on what you've done wrong in your life. Focus on the God that wants to make it all new and the God that loves you enough not to leave you where you're at. So number one, we see the lost sheep, God's individual love for you. Number two, I want us to see the lost coin. And beside that, God has spared nothing to rescue you. The lost coin, and God has spared nothing to rescue you. Back in Luke chapter 15, verse number 8. Remember the first parable of the lost sheep. The second one, he says this in his parable, verse number 8. Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. Can I tell you something? It's the idea of this woman having ten coins, and the idea is, well, one coin by itself really doesn't have any great value on its own. The one coin by itself didn't really have any great value on its own. But there's something here about Jewish custom that you've got to understand. You say, Phil, you love Jewish custom. Yeah, I do, because Jesus really, you miss a lot if you don't understand it. This is what this means. When a Jewish girl would get married, part of the ceremony and part of the symbolism was she would take ten coins and she would make it into a headdress. And when she got married, it adorned her head right here, ten pieces or ten coins. And so what she would do is she would take it. It was very sentimental to her. It was very, uh, had a much meaning to it that she was going to be married and that this headdress here was a symbol of her complete love and devotion for her spouse. Now picture in that headdress as she's getting ready to be married that one coin falls away. Ladies, it would be kind of like that nice diamond that's in your ring falling out. You still got the band but you gonna probably want something shiny in there. Imagine losing that diamond. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> I'll get no. No, I'm pretty sure that's not how you felt. Unless you weren't happy with the size of the one you got. And then that's, we're not preaching on contentment today. Okay, so we're not going that way. Some of y'all got really excited, been there for a moment, but we're not doing that. But she lost a piece. She lost a coin. And by itself, that coin really had no meaning. But when she put the coins together and put that headdress together, she was going to give herself into her husband and enter into this relationship. And now something that she had that was important to her, that by itself had no value at all. But when you put it all together, man, it had great meaning. And now one of those pieces is gone. And I, and I see her response. And I see the way it is. And, and as I said, it had great sentimental value that the idea of losing one was the idea of losing one was terrible. It was devastating. Yeah, she had nine more, but it's like nine wasn't what I needed. I've been given ten. I want all ten. By the way, when it comes to your spouse, when it comes to your family, your friends, your coworkers, don't be satisfied by letting one of them go into a godless eternity. I have four children, and according to their testimony, thank God, all four of them have put their faith and trust in Christ. I've told you before, my greatest fear in all the world is not that one of my children will go away from God or that one of my children will become an axe murderer or do something terrible in their life. My greatest fear, even though I pray to God I've never will experience, I know some of you have, is that one of my children will die before me. I, I don't want to see that day either. But my greatest fear in all the world is this, that just one of my children will die and go to hell by not accepting Christ. There's nothing worse. But here's my question to me as a parent. What am I doing about it to help lead them to Christ? You're here today. God's blessed you with children. I dare say you wouldn't want to see one of your children, one of your grandchildren, die and go to hell. What are you doing? To help point them to Christ. You can't save them. You can't change their heart. But you can keep pointing them to Jesus that can. And I think sometimes we get tired. Sometimes we get tired of their things that they don't do. And we get so frustrated with them. That you know what we do? 
we keep being in their lives, but we quit pointing them to the one that can change their life. I wouldn't want to see one. Hey, we got a bunch of kids out back here. You know what I pray a lot of times to myself? I don't necessarily pray here. I pray this, that of all those kids that are back there, Brother Johnny always texts me a number. I don't know if he texts me a number during the service because he wants me to pray for him more because there's more kids back there or what it is. But I always pray, God, don't let one of them slip through the cracks and die and go to hell. Well, I don't really know that child. I think we really understood what hell was like. We wouldn't want our worst enemy to go there if we really understood it. And if we really believed it, we wouldn't. But the way you're living your life today, do you live your life like the woman here that loses one and is frantically searching to find it? Or have you got kind of cold? Well, that's my brother. That's my mama. That's my daddy. That's my grandpa. That's my coworker. That's my boss. That's the person I see on the street that I just say hello to. Are you searching the house, diligently trying to have them see Christ? Or you just worried about your own little life? If you're like me, I am so worried about everything i got to do this week that I never focus on what God may want me to do for him this week. Everybody in this room has got a schedule. Everybody in this room has got plans. But are you searching for that lost coin? You know what? This woman realized that by itself a coin wasn't much. But because of what the symbolism was, that unity, she says, you know what? I need to search for it. And by the way, how did she search for it? How did she search for it? Look in the verse again. And uh, <clears throat> down here, verse number 8, it says, Either what woman having ten pieces of silver, she lose one piece. Look at this part. Doth not light candle. She does two things. She lights a candle. We're not going to take time to go there, but Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, talk about that a city set on the hill cannot be hid. And it talks about if you light a candle, don't put it under a bushel, but let your light so shine that a man may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let me ask you today, is your light shining? Or the way you live in your life, is it just like having a bushel over top of it? Oh, they see you. They don't see Christ. You know what my honest prayer is every time I get the opportunity to stand up here? You don't see me. I sometimes pray, God, use me in spite of me. God, get me out of the way. You know why? Because if you see me, I have failed. But that you might see Christ. You might see that light inside of me. And as we like to say, and I believe it's true, do you know what my testimony is, my personal testimony is? It's what you think Christ means to me. That's what my testimony is. What do you think Christ means to me? And can I tell you something? It's a lot more more than just what I say. It's how I live. How would those people that are lost around you, what's your testimony to them? And that's you not defending yourself. Because when you live a life that's pleasing to Christ, you don't have to defend yourself. You don't have to say, I do this, I do that, I do that. Let Christ speak for you in the way you live your life. How's your light shining today? Is your light shining today? She could have looked around in the dark, but it's a whole lot easier to look with a flashlight. You know, we're, we're in this new house, and we're enjoying that, but can I tell you something? I am not used to being in this house yet. And at night, sometimes i got to get up and move around, and it can be entertaining. That's all i got to say. There is nothing like kicking a bedpost barefoot in the middle of the night that will get you talking to the Lord. I mean, you will. I mean, you were just... <laughs> I mean, I'm almost to the point now, sometimes I want to put flashlights everywhere I go, where I just click, 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 everything i got to do. Going down the hall, I mean, I'm still used to turning certain ways by living over here. Works out a whole lot better when I turn that light on. But sometimes I don't want to turn the light on. Why? Because I don't want to disturb anybody else. A lot of times we don't turn our light on. Because we don't want to bother anybody else. Our light might offend them. But your light also might draw them to the light. It might help them in the darkness see that there's a Christ that loves them. It might help them see that the life that they're living is not worthless and it's not uh, impossible for God to love them and do something in their life. Let that light shine. Can others see your light? Can others see your Christ? But also, what does she do? It says she swept the house. Look at the end of the verse there in verse number 8. It says, and she swept the house and seek diligently till she find it. Psalm 139, verse number 23 and 24 is a great psalm of David. He says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me 
in the way of everlasting. I tell you, if you ever want to have an opportunity to ask God to really be honest with you, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24 is a pretty good prayer. You know what you're asking God to do? Sweep my house. Sweep my heart. You know, if you lose something and you start cleaning real good, and clean good, you're probably going to find it. But you know what the problem is with sweeping? You're probably not just going to find a coin. You're probably going to find some dirt. By the way, can't see the dirt in the darkness. That's why I like to live without my light on. A lot of us like to live in the dirt because we don't want Jesus to shine the light on what needs to be swept up and thrown away. What does the Bible say? Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. We all do. Even as believers, our deeds are evil a lot of times. That's what our heart wants to do, where it wants to go. But think about it today. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God wants to know my heart. God wants to know my thoughts that no one else sees. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And if there is, lead me, God, in the way of everlasting. Maybe today you need to let Jesus sweep a little bit in your house. Maybe you need to let him sweep out the dirt that's in your life. And then number three. Number one, we saw the lost sheep and God's individual love for us. And by the way, that love does include cleaning up some. Number two, we see the lost coin. God has, spared nothing to, God has spared nothing to rescue us. But number three, we see the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation. And my thought behind this is this. Rejoicing over a changed life. Rejoicing over a changed life. Look in verse number six and seven. Now remember, this is the lost sheep passage, right? The lost sheep. Look what it says when he finds him. At the end of verse 5, it says, Rejoicing, he found him, verse 6. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which needeth no repentance. I tell you, I love the one word in verse number 6. It says, My sheep. And you know what that tells me? I know who I belong to. I'm not my own. I'm not this world. As, as Maggie saying earlier, I'm not a slave to these other things in my life. I know who I belong to. I'm not just anyone's sheep. I belong to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I belong to Jesus Christ. And it says here, rejoice with me, Jesus is saying, because I found my sheep, the ones that belong to me. They belong to me. And he says, that's why I rejoice. The shepherd in this passage, he rejoiced over that little lamb that lost and was found. Look in verse number 9 and 10. It says, and when, talking about the woman with a coin, it says, and when she had found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The woman was overjoyed when she recovered her lost coin. And she was so happy she had a party to celebrate it. <laughs> she was so excited over finding it. But even so, don't miss what it says. What did Jesus say in verse 7? Jesus says there's joy in heaven. Not just here. Not just when God does something here and we get excited. And when God saves someone, not just joy here, but joy in heaven. Joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. And you know, let me share with you why that is. Why is there celebration over one person? What's the value of one that turns to Christ? What is that? The reason that there's joy in heaven over one is because the happiest experience of life, can I tell you, is to be rescued by God. I love when I got married and it was a wonder, it's been a wonderful experience. I almost said it had been, but it's been a wonderful experience. When God allowed me to have children, it's been a wonderful experience. When I've had relationships with people in the past, and I tell you, having relationships with you all now, I don't know if you're just smiling at me a lot on purpose, but, you know, these relationships, you know, it's a wonderful experience. But there is not a happier, joyful experience you'll ever have in your life when that day you give your heart and life to Christ and he gives you that peace that passes all understanding. There is not a better moment. My kids, Lord willing, are going to graduate from high school one day, Lord willing, and prayerfully. They may go to college, they may do whatever, and that's going to be a wonderful thing as a parent to look at them and the successes that they enjoy. But can I tell you, if my children's salvation is any less of a celebration than what they do on this earth, something is wrong with me. And some of us are over 
how much God has done for us. We're over God saving our children. We're over God saving our parents. We're over God doing something in our own life. And the Bible says there's rejoicing in heaven. Not because my kid scored a goal in a game yesterday. They did. That was awesome. Okay. But there was rejoicing in heaven whenever little Chloe, whatever age she was, bowed her head and put her faith and trust in Christ. And God help me if I ever get over God doing that. Some of us are so excited about the things that won't last that we forget what God has done for us or what God has done for our families or what God has done and celebrating the happiest moment in life. First Peter chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, it says, Whom having not seen ye love, and whom though ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, which is the salvation of of your soul. That's awesome. To know that God saves us. It's because it's the happiest moment of our life. And why should I celebrate? Because it's pretty simple. The Bible says that heaven celebrates. I should celebrate what God celebrates. I should get excited about what God gets excited about. Um, Dr. Charles Keene, he, he's the founder of Bearing Precious Seed. that did a lot of Bibles and tracts and things up in Milford, Ohio. He said this. He says, he says my fear is that I'll be a success at something that matters little to God. I'll be a success, or my greatest success, will be in something that matters little to God. What about you? What is that thing that you're craving God to allow you to be successful at? Let me ask you a question. Will it stand the test of time for eternity? What is your greatest success you're looking for in your life? And now ask yourself, does it matter to God? If you're successful at it. Do we celebrate what heaven celebrates? Do we celebrate what he celebrates? What in this life do you get really excited about? What gives you the greatest joy that you can imagine? And by the way, it may be different for different people. But for those of us that know the Lord Jesus Christ, I submit to you that we should celebrate what heaven celebrates. We should get excited about what God gets excited about. And you really want to know the real reason as I close here? You want to really know what the real reason is? We should celebrate whenever God does something in someone's life. Why we should celebrate? Because he says the angels celebrate and all heaven celebrates. We didn't look at the parable of the prodigal son. But you really know, want to know why we should celebrate whenever God saves someone's soul. It's the very last verse of Luke fifteen thirty-two. It's the end of the prodigal son parable. This is why we should celebrate. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Can I tell you something? God is personally interested in every lost lamb, every lost coin, every wayward son. But he's equally interested in the secretary in your office, the student that you go to class with, that person that you see as you're pumping gas tomorrow as you get ready to do your job. That one that drives you up the wall insane in your family. He's interested in them every bit as much. He's interested in that drunk. He's interested in that person that's bound by addictions in their life. He's every bit as interested in them as he is in me. Can I tell you, you'll never truly celebrate your salvation or the salvation of others until you fully appreciate what God has done for you in saving you. You'll never do it. In just a little bit, we're going to have the opportunity to baptize Noah, and I'm excited. And let me just tell you up front, hopefully you understand that water doesn't save anybody. That's the first step of obedience. Your salvation is not of works. Your salvation is because of what Christ has done in you. But you know what? In a little bit, we're going to be able to see this young man get up here, and we're going to put him in the water. We're going to baptize him. Why are we going to baptize him? Because what Christ has done in his life. And can I tell you something? We ought to be able to celebrate that. But don't let that celebration be so minuscule over how happy you were that Georgia won last night. Hey, I'm pretty stoked Tennessee won. It hasn't happened in 11 months, okay? So I'm pretty happy about it. But if we're not careful, we look at God do something in somebody's life, and we're like, oh, that's good. 
But what really gets us is something that's so temporal that means nothing. That we get so much joy out of what doesn't matter. May we celebrate what heaven celebrates. May we get excited when God does something in someone's life. Can I tell you, if you're over your salvation, you've gotten over it, you'll fail to get celebrating and happy for what God does in someone else's life. Don't be like the Pharisees that Jesus is referring to. You say, Brother Phil, I don't think he was referring to the Pharisees. Well, I don't know if you noticed in that verse 7, talking about the rejoicing in heaven, but do you see the end of that verse? More than over the ninety and nine just persons which needeth no repentance. A lot of us mistake that mean. He doesn't get excited about us as believers and what we do. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying here in this passage here, he says, more than the ninety and nine just persons would need no repentance. It's better understood like this. More than the ninety and nine just persons that don't think they need forgiving. It's really saying he gets more excited about one that knows he needs God more than the ones that feel like I'm good. I don't need him. That's what he gets excited about. And if you're lost today, you can be found. There's a God that loves you and is seeking you and searching you. He loves you so much that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die on the cross for you. Will you repent, which simply means you don't just change your mind, you change your behavior? Will you accept his gift of salvation? And if you're a believer today, let me ask you the question. In the way you live your life today, like this woman in the parable. Is your light shining? And are you willing for God to get out the broom and sweep up and show you the dirt in your life? The parable of the lost and the found. Let's stand together if you would. Father, thank you so much.